I'm Jolie, your branding badass. Welcome to my new podcast, Branding Matters. Today, I have a very special guest, someone I've known for quite a long time. Before we get into our really interesting conversation, I'm going to tell you a little bit about him and read you his bio. My guest today is an old friend from my university days, Charles Rosen. Since those crazy days at UWO, which is known as University of Western Ontario, Chuck, as we fondly used to call him, has had an incredibly diverse career or maybe I should say several careers. From being a successful lawyer to movie producer to starting his own ad agency in New York where he worked with some of the world's most iconic brands like Coca-Cola and Ben and & Jerry's. He even tried his hand at politics where he worked with Hillary Clinton on both her 2008 and 2016 campaigns. And he thought about maybe getting into politics himself, but I'll let him explain that more to you. Today, Chuck is building his own successful brand in his latest career as, wait for it, a farmer. (laughs) Yep, you heard me right. Charles Rosen is a farmer. He is the founder of Ironbound Farm, home of Ironbound Hard Cider and Newark Farms. Nestled in the foothills of the New Jersey Highlands, this is no ordinary farm by all means, and definitely no ordinary cider. What makes Ironbound Farm and Ironbound Hard Cider so unique, other than its founder, of course, is that it was built on the belief that businesses must take responsibility for the impact they have on the social, economic, and ecological well-being of their communities. It's a unique social enterprise network committed to building a collective of local farmers, food producers, retailers, and restaurateurs as an alternative food economy in which land and people thrive. I invited Chuck to be a guest on my show, not only because of his larger than life personality, which you are soon going to see for yourself, but when I think about how brands are making a shift from it's all about me to it's all about we, He puts his money where his mouth is. I am so excited to introduce to you my friend, Charles Rosen. Chuck, welcome to Branding Matters. Yay, I'm so happy to be here today. (laughs) So fun to connect with you on this thing. Oh, I'm so excited. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Okay, so I, I have to ask. I mean, since I saw you last, those many years ago, lawyer, movie producer, politician, ad guy, and now a farmer. What has been your motivation to start each one of these careers and what has also motivated you to leave and go into the next? Can you share that with us? Um, Inquiry minds want to know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure I can probably uh, also uh, answer to my wife and therapist. Yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah. You know, it's interesting having been in, in spaces like that were very intense, whether it was, you know, the legal world or the film world or even the political space, I was always trying to find this balance between kind of doing a job to help build our economy and, you know, make these other businesses thrive and also trying to find some fulfillment in it for myself. The one thing I really came to understand, especially in my time in the in the political space, was that once you understand for whom the system works, you re- you realize it's working real well, right? And there's not a lot of incentive for it to change. I know in my time in, in politics in, in the US, 
you know, it didn't really matter who I was engaged with, whether they were a Democrat or a Republican, as long as they were like me, you know, like a fat, rich, white guy, they were good. <laughs> Everybody else in the system was kind of, you know, screwed. And that's whether we're looking at our economic system or our political system or even our food system, right, which is really what's led me to this, this space right now. When I was in my exploratory phase to run for Congress here in the States and, um, I was at a meeting with some pretty high up folks in the Democratic Party, and I was telling them how I, I really wanted to build a system that was a, a politic born of the people, right? Something that was kind of a populism born out of our progressive values and, and how government was no longer really kind of, you know, of the people for the people. And we're in this great meeting, and these are very, very high up officials in the party. And they said, ah, we really want to support your primary run. And, and also, even though it was in a very strong Republican district, it was, it was uncommon for the party to support a, a, a freshman, you know, challenger to a very dominant Republican. But anyway, so they said, look, there's two meetings we need you to have right away. The ex-chairman of Shell Oil lives in your district, and he's got a clean coal initiative that we think you can own. And then uh, we got to get you in front of APAC now. So that's the American Israeli Pack. And I yep. said, well, with all due respect, I said, we've been talking about an hour here about how government's no longer working for the people. And the first two meetings you want me to have with you are Shell Oil on clean coal and APAC because I'm a Jew. Yeah. <laughs> I said, I don't, I don't really think we're talking about the same stuff here. So yeah. I got back in the car with my campaign chairman, a, a guy who had been a chief of staff for a sitting congressman at the time. And uh, I said to him, I was like, look, Mark, I said, I'll, I'll, I'll you know, kiss whatever ass I have to in the in the campaign and I'll go meet with APAC or whatever you want me to do. I said, but um, tell me, if I win, what do I do for a living? Like if I'm in the US House of Representatives, what's my day look like? Yeah. And well, you're in DC five days a week. I'm uh, sorry. He said, you're in DC two days a week. I said, two days a week. Where am I there? Five days. He said, oh, well, you're in district raising money. So I said, well, I have two days a week to do, you know, the work of the people. He's like, uh, not exactly. He said, um, it's illegal for you to raise money on Capitol Hill in your office in Capitol Hill. So we have a call center and you as a junior member in the minority party, are going to spend a minimum of two to three hours a day in the call center dialing for dollars for the party for other races. So I said, Mark, now you're talking about like me having an, a, a day and a half in my office. I said, how the hell do I even know what I'm supposed to vote for? Mm-hmm. He said, well, you know, every Monday morning, there's a piece of paper on your desk courtesy of Nancy Pelosi with your voting positions. And you go to the floor, you make your vote and you leave for the call center. And it was so jolly. It like hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, that's the job, right? Just raising money for the party. And again, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican. So at that moment, I was like, I can't continue to feed this machine. I can't mm-hmm. continue to be part of something that was not in service of so many of the people you know, around me that were so, you know, underserved. And so it led me to Newark. Uh, so I live in a town called Montclair, New Jersey. It's a basically a suburb of, of Newark, New Jersey, one of the key industrial centers of, of colonial era America and all the way through to the 60s. And so I, I started my work in Newark focused on urban renewal and workforce development. And primarily at that time, I saw that, you know, less than one in eight jobs in Newark were held by Newark residents. And it was one in three and almost one in two men of color, black men spent time in prison. And I had done a lot of work in criminal justice reform, both in the political space and and in my legal work. So I really started to focus on this idea of the chronically underemployed and primarily the formerly incarcerated ex-offenders as 
a population that has been so dismissed, so pushed down in our society so that the rest of us can get really rich. I started a business focused on, on urban renewal and workforce development with these ex-offenders. And, and it, was in, it was interesting, actually, because this was the moment where I actually really saw how Canadian I was, right? So here in the States, the American dream is mostly rooted in the individual right? It's rooted in this idea that if I work hard and, you know, you get the fuck out of my way, I'm getting a boat, you know, and it's your fault that I don't have one, right? You and I, we grew up in a society that was more rooted in the collective good, right? Rooted in this idea of community. So you and I went to university for what was pretty darn close to free, you know, compared to what Mm -hmm. my daughter right now is paying as a freshman or now, right? right? And we all had healthcare and et cetera, et cetera. So there was there was this idea in the Canadian ethos about the collective good, the well-being of the community. And that really helped define what I wanted to do and be. And mostly in this idea of like, how do I create something where my success doesn't come at the expense of yours? How is my success actually connected to yours, right? right. Where we're creating sort of viability and resiliency for all of us. And then, you know, we'll get into it in more detail well, later. But that really is also what agriculture looks like, right? Okay. Building, a, building a, especially in our focus of regenerative agriculture, this idea of building a healthy ecosystem in the soil, right? How do you create a system of diverse organisms that support one another so that the whole system gets stronger? And I'm like, right. well, fuck, that's what community building should look like. So that's, that's what led me to the work that we're doing now. Okay, that's really interesting. I want to just go back. You talk about us Canadians and having this collective desire to help, but I don't. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I mean, I don't know if all Canadians feel that way. I think we definitely are different than the U.S. But I think you specifically, by the sounds of what you do, you really want to help the less fortunate and the underprivileged. Where does that come from? From more of a personal level, you can tell yeah. that you're passionate about it so just getting back to charles rosen for a second what is it about you that you it motivates you and inspires you to do this yeah it's it's so interesting because i I think we all always struggle to figure out why why we're into what we're into but i would say you know a lot of it comes back to the fact that you know my mom was a young jewish woman from the bronx when she married my father she was 18 oh yeah Oh, right. And uh, he brought her to Kingston, Ontario, in the <laughs> very provincial little town where, you know, yeah. she said she often used to say uh, where she was from, everybody was Jewish. And if you weren't, you certainly wanted to be. And then Kingston, where like you're like the only Jew in the. Right. Probably and, and so place. I think with her sort of like New York sort of drive and sort of, as they say, Yiddish chutzpah, but blended with my father's deep commitment to community. So, you know, he. He worked his whole life really hard to support his family, you know, before us. I mean, his, his brothers and sisters and stuff, you know, left high school to help work with the family. And what did your father do? Sorry. So he was in the scrap metal business and involved in the steel business and stuff. But it was funny because they, my parents actually got married on Christmas day because (laughs) my dad was not going to miss a day of work for getting married. Right. Oh, you're kidding. Seven days a week. And they're like, well, you know, we have Christmas and boxing days. (laughs) So let's see when our next opening is. Right. Exactly. So so Christmas forever was just us celebrating my parents' uh, anniversary. So he had this deep work ethic, like crazy, almost obsessive working till really, you know, dying at work till the day he died and, Mm -hmm. um, or working, you know, at, at, until the day he died anyway, he, uh, but what was interesting about his 
sort of sense of things. I think growing up in the depression, he was always yelling at my mom about how much money she spent about whatever it was, oh, right? My dad too. Uh, my dad, absolutely. Right? Phone bills to yeah. us if we're living in New York yeah. or whatever. Everything was always a problem. But I'll tell you, interestingly, the one thing he never complained about ever was paying taxes. And it's interesting because, you know, although he was so really you know, this depression era baby thinking about like not really having money, he understood somewhere deep that he had this social contract. There was this contract with society that Canada was the place that allowed him to thrive, build a, 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 a better life and build a life for us, his family. And so it's fascinating because actually just jumping ahead a little, I, I'm finding it interesting that more and more Canadians I know now actually don't hold that philosophy anymore. I'm watching Canadians yeah. kind of shift almost in more into an American mindset where it's about, hey, you know, I want to pay less taxes and I want to do less and I need more myself. And I'm I'm like screaming at the top of my lungs to all my friends because oh. I'm like, no, fuck, you guys are ruining my exit strategy. Like I got to be able to come home. Yeah. But, uh, but anyway, so this, I think for me, there was this- It's in your DNA. You know, yeah. And there was this interesting blend of knowing how to sort of develop for myself. And it was funny, you know, my mom- you know, the typical Jewish mother thought that, you know, I walked on water, right? I could do no wrong. Like, Are you, are you, uh, sorry, are you the oldest son or how many? I'm the baby. No, I'm oh, you're the very baby. much the baby. Oh, okay. Because I haven't, yeah. Love baby where my mother, you know, was obsessed with me. So how many are you? Sorry, how many siblings you Three. Three. Two so older my, sisters? Yeah, well, my oldest brother actually oh. is still home in Kingston, and he now uh, owns and runs this multi-generational steel company in Kingston. Oh, okay. uh, stayed with my dad. My sister uh, became a very uh, prominent, really, really famous art gallerist uh, in New York. She owned the Andrea Rosen Gallery. Oh, cool. Uh, I love the way you always plug your family. I'm the same way. Right? Right? Well, you yeah. don't just mention them, but you're like, and they're doing this. I do yeah, that all the time, well, too. Right. And my and friends, you know, too, right? Like, right. Well, that's why I love, I mean, through our relationship, me being able to become <laughs> friends with your brother and, and, and the advertising world. It's funny. And, watching him and 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 working with him and having him support the growth of our agency yeah these families are really important but, but yeah anyway, so, so you're I, the baby and you're your yeah. mom's favorite and <laughs> i think there was this like always balance where i had this belief that i could do and be anything yeah but it also came with a responsibility to others right and and to me and it was interesting jolie because when I was in the film business, I was becoming a pretty well-known movie producer, right? I felt like shit all the time, right? Mm -hmm. I remember looking at Harvey Weinstein when we'd be at events together, working on films at Miramax when I was doing that. And I was like, I wasn't so grossed out by him as I was grossed out by the ideas. Like, I am inches away from becoming that fat fuck, yeah. right? Like, it was like, I so easily could slip into being that guy. And so whether it was in film or when I owned the ad agency or even in the political space, as I continued to like become more successful professionally, and as it was mostly always wrapped around my ego, I never felt very good about that success. And now that I've made this shift where I'm trying to build a whole system where mm -hmm. I'm thinking about the well-being of others, actually before even my well-being, I know that I'm not going to be okay no matter how much money I have or what a big house I live in or whatever it is, it's not going to be enough unless those around me are thriving and we're creating a resiliency in the community, right? So in my work now, 
right? So we're all scared to death about the pandemic and climate change, especially as a farmer. Trust me, I'm, 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 I'm so attuned to the weather every single moment oh, of every sure, day. Yeah. So even though I'm scared all the time and usually under the bed in the fetal position in the middle <laughs> of the night, the second I get to the farm, I feel good. I feel at peace. I feel like even though it's really scary, it's hard to be a farmer in the face of climate change. And it's certainly hard to have a hard cider company in the face of Anheuser-Busch and Miller Coors and Sam Adams, right? Especially doing with a bunch of ex-cons who have no interest in being farmers, but that's a whole other part of the conversation. But the point is, I feel so good and I feel so connected to the land, to each other. You know, we have uh, every Sunday night, we have what we call family dinner at the farm. And, you know, we literally have people sitting around together in the barn. And I've got guys in Trump make Make America Great Again hats sitting side by side with black gang members, Egyptian refugees, and these, you know, two gay Costa Rican dudes. It's like we're the best, we're the most busted Benetton ad you've ever yeah, seen. Yeah, no life. kidding. That's but it great. feels like community, yeah. right? Yeah. And so that's, it's been interesting for me for my own journey, having done, as you said, like, I don't know, you know, I went from this to that to the other. I failed epically at most of those things, which taught me a oh. lot. I think I built some humility in those failures that was really important. But only now do I even feel like what I think success should feel like. And mm-hmm. when I'm now teaching my children and that my children are engaged with the children of, of the team that works at my place that I just described, it feels totally different, Jolie. And it, it feels like what we all need to sort of make the shift that we all need to make to shift right now as a as a planet as societies like you look at the massive gap between the rich and the poor and the left and the right and the and you have no idea in canada how extreme the differences are down here mm-hmm. right so although there's differences in canada and of course you know we have political differences and there's different racial groups etc nothing nothing compared to like the extreme us versus themness of this country and whether you're in advertising and it's like, how do we take down the other company or, or it's me as an individual and how do I get, you know, like I said, my boat, despite the cost to you. And, and, and I would say from a brand perspective, it's really, it's really, really interesting to think about Trump as brand, right? So in my mind, the reason why Trump won, it's not political, it's cultural, right? When you think about the most powerful brands and you think about brands that hold out ideological value for someone, right? You and I have talked about this before. Most people drink what they drink at a bar, not because they think it tastes good, because they want to, you know, impress the person at the other end of the bar. So for me, if I'm at a bar with a girl that looks a lot like you, you know, <laughs> I'm going to want to drink something that was like, maybe I can build a courage to go talk to the other night, right? So well, you have to drink it. cider. I don't drink beer. So you're right. on the right track. <laughs> right? See, right there. Yeah, exactly. Cider. And it's yeah. made by these, yeah. you know, ex-offenders yeah. and they care yeah. about the planet, right? I'm in, yeah. right? So, so no, but it's this idea of, of symbolic value for the consumer. Right. Well, I also feel that way, you know, politically. So Trump, in my opinion, personified this American dream, this idea that, you know, there's a winner and a loser. Like, Lord knows I'm not the loser. So that makes you the loser. Right. But there's this idea that if I work hard and it doesn't matter if I step on people on the way to the top, I can get to the top at all costs. And okay, we've just lost all our Trump supporters now, so keep well, going. Well, no, it's not because <laughs> it's funny. Is, yeah, and it's, it's interesting about that is I work every day. No, I, like, I'm just but, teasing you. No, yeah. but it's really funny because yeah. I come at this work as this like typical liberal elite social justice warrior douchebag, right? Like that's how I came wow. to it. And it's wrong. 
Mm -hmm. doesn't work like that. That's not how you build community. So the fact that I sit now every day with hardcore Trump supporters, right? Every farmer in this country, you know, <laughs> except the six dairy yeah. farmers that live with Ben and Jerry's in Vermont. I mean, farmers are mostly hardcore conservative, you know, for a lot of reasons. And, yeah. um, but we're building community together and it's fascinating. So instead I was talking about Trump's symbolic resonance, right? Which, which would say to a person like, Hey, this system's ignored me for so long, but if I can get the people out of the way, you know, government and big business, and if I can get them all out of the way, I'm going to be okay. And yeah. Trump promised them that. Yeah. Right. And by the way, we can get rid of all your Trump listeners and all your Obama listeners at the exact same time. <laughs> so I'll tell you this, having worked well, for Obama as long as I did, I can tell you this, he's the same fucking shit that Trump was. He was only driven by personal ascension. He only wanted in the club, right? But he promised, he promised this idea of hope and change to people mm -hmm. of color, to those disenfranchised on the left. Well, he served well, the same folks that Trump servant. It's just the optics of it, right? When we're talking yeah. about branding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Obama yeah. brand and the Trump brand, they're the same. Yeah, you know, you know it's funny uh, when we talk about branding and politics specifically, I read somewhere, I don't know if you know this, that the best or the most famous political campaign tagline of all time do you know what it is? Teach the world to sing? No, I don't know. No, yeah. Make America great again. Right? Really? Because it was it was trying to deliver this brand promise that the world oh. was looking to an American. So anyway, yeah, I read this really yeah. interesting article about that and it makes sense. So let's bring it back a little bit. Chuck, when, when you and I first talked, uh, Charles said to me, he goes, okay, Julie, I, I go off a lot. So just rain it, bring me back in. <laughs> so I'm doing that a little bit here. Okay. So let's go back to now you decide to be a farmer. So why Newark and why cider? Yeah. Well, Newark, interestingly, because again, I, I live in this very, very progressive community just outside of Manhattan, right? Like we see the city from our house and everybody lives in Montclair because we talk about our socioeconomic diversity, right? And our children all go to public schools and the schools are diverse and blah, blah, blah. Well, the like little secret, and I don't even know if it's that much of a secret is that's bullshit because there's two Montclairs, right? There's wealthy folks on one side of this mm. main street called Bloomfield Avenue and poor folk on the other, right? So any of our integration is really just you know, uh, everybody that's, you know, diverse, but still well off. It's, it's funny. like. But the top 2% of the. Right, exactly. Well, it's very funny. It's like when, when Lauren and I first moved here, we joined this very, very progressive synagogue, right? And uh, it's called, it's, it's in the faith of re reconstruction. It doesn't matter. Anyway. So I'm distracted by that ring on your finger. Sorry. What is that? Sorry. Yeah, I was that playing. It's just a thing I was playing oh. with. No, it's not a ring. It's just a little. A Christmas ornament thing. in the Jewish house yeah. of the Rosens? Yeah, right. No, no, no. It's yeah. funny. So we, she and I uh, joined this synagogue and I, I lean over to Lauren. I'm like, I really like it here, but I think we're the only Jews. Like if you were like black and oh, gay, wow. whatever, okay. right? like that's how progressive Montclair yeah. is. But even the synagogue is, is got to be this diverse. Okay. Anyway. How did you meet your wife? Sorry, totally going off topic oh, here. Just quickly. That's, that's a whole, from, that could be a whole show, man. Is she that from is, New York though, or is she Canadian? She is, and uh, we she met. She's New York, okay. We, that is a whole other fun just story. Just give us I, like two second version. Two seconds is, I met her at a bar. She does not remember that. <laughs> I spent six months courting the crap out of her. I was when I was a movie producer, and I was having these parties at our huge Tribeca loft, and I was getting other people to invite her, and she didn't know that they were for her. And six months into what I thought, the, where things were going very very well yeah she said look charles i need you to know i think you're one just of not that now, <laughs> but i will never be romantically interested in you ever right and i was like what yeah so yeah it was the child and then here you are now how many years you've been married 
21 years and I think I almost got her into me. Like we're close. <laughs> I'm okay. Any day now. Kids. Okay. Awesome. Thank and you. Two kids, two yeah. kids. It's fun because again, I keep pulling up the Canadian stuff, but our youngest, so my oldest daughter, Sydney is in uh, uh, a freshman, a first year at, at Cornell. And my mm -hmm. son, Oscar, who just turned 16 is a very, very elite hockey player. He only identifies as being Canadian. He's lived here his entire life, but he won't tell you he's American. He only tells you that he's Canadian because, uh, well, I guess because of the hockey. Yeah, uh, no kidding. But uh, a couple of years ago, we made this team to represent the United States in a global tournament in Beijing. And um, uh, when we got the call, it was a big deal. And uh, and he started to cry and he said, I'm not going to China. And I was like, I thought he was scared to go to China. And I was like, what are you talking about, sweetheart? We're all going to go. This is great. And he's like, no, I'm not going because I'm not playing for this dumb country. I'm not American. Oh. I'm Funny. And I said, oh, no, honey, you're not good enough to play for Canada. This is our <laughs> country. My wife, Lauren, was like, Charles, you're such a dick. I'm like, no, let's keep things in perspective. Oh, okay, funny. So anyway, yeah, That's so anyway, the, okay. the, the whole thing about Montclair is that yeah. Montclair is actually a, a, a suburb of Newark, not New York City. And uh, it's where all the big industrialists that made Newark famous in, in the early days uh, lived. And uh, anyway, so I always had a connection to Newark through my political work with now Senator Booker and others. So I, I was always aware of sort of Newark's economic realities. And I saw a lot of business growing in Newark, big, huge companies, Audible, uh, which is now owned by Amazon and Prudential, the huge financial institution, all these mm -hmm. major, major companies are in Newark. But they're not in Newark in partnership with the people of Newark. They're there right. for cheap land, cheap mm -hmm. labor, you know, and they all get the hell out of town at six o'clock at night and come back to Montclair, right? Yeah. So I saw this growth in Newark, like all other cities, urban centers in the States, where this idea of gentrification, which is really actually a bad word, right? It's gentrification as the word gentry in the middle. It's the displacement of the local yeah. people with the white elite. So I saw this massive level of gentrification and I saw the poor in Newark getting so poor and the rich mm. taking advantage of Newark in a level that made them just insanely wealthy. I mean, my good friend started Audible. Uh, he lives here in Montclair. He's one of my neighbors. He sold Audible to Amazon for $380 million. They're based in Newark. Newark worked real well for him and his team, but not, not yeah. so much for you know everyone else. Anyway, so I went to Newark, really focused on urban agriculture and and thinking about you know community gardens and vertical farming and all this stuff. And this comes back to your question about why cider. And two years into it, we came to learn that the very first industry in Newark ever was hard cider. George Washington yeah. only drank Newark cider. It was so famous in colonial era America that it was known as the champagne of ciders. And in awesome Jersey fashion, the majority of champagne drunk in New York and Philadelphia for over a hundred years was just cider from Newark. Right? Amazing. So yeah. I always love to think that Jersey, Jersey, Jersey has been Jersey forever, right? Jersey, yeah. Jersey. So anyway, I felt that at that time, which is like, I don't know, eight, nine years ago, whatever, cider was the fastest growing segment of the alcohol category, right? It was before all this bullshit White Claw and other seltzer stuff. But anyway, so cider was really fast growing. We had this deep heritage of cider production in this state and story of place when you're building brands, place matters, right? And and, and anchoring a brand in place is is critically important. So anyway, why so place, sorry, why does place matter when you're building well, a brand? Place matters for a bunch of reasons. One, uh, about the story of place. If, if something's going to, no pun intended in, in my world, but like organically grow out of a, like it's, it's often our idea that we can come in and dominate, whether it's dominate the land as farmers or dominate a community because like, hey, fuck it, I'm going to build a casino here, right? What, yeah. Regardless, you're not really 
tapping into the deep roots of a place that can allow a brand to really take advantage of what matters to the people within that community, right? So if you understand the history, the cultural, the things that resonate culturally, even the geology of the land, what's interesting is cider was critically important in colonial era America because they did not drink the water, right? So there's this whole area around Newark that includes Montclair called the Newark Water Basin. This water basin was what cleaned all of the water, all of these estuaries, everything, which allowed there to be this sort of agricultural underpinning to what New Jersey is. And for those of for your listeners that don't know, New Jersey is known as the Garden State because it was Ben Franklin who said that it's as if New Jersey, the Garden State, is an immense barrel full of wonderful food with New York tapping one end and Philadelphia the other, right? So we had these deep agrarian roots. And we were also a manufacturing center. So what's interesting about cider being the very first industry in Newark is it was the thing that blended those two things. It was agricultural, but it also created this product for the region, right? right? And for Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and everybody else. So tapping into that where we could create this kind of Jersey badge, right? You know, like our tagline for the cider is Jersey takes care of its own. And what we're talking about is how we care for the community where our workforce, again, I talked about everybody that's in our blended community and our restaurateurs and our, and our retailers and the partners, mm-hmm. right? We're taking care of the people of Newark, but we're also deeply engaged in environmental repair in New Jersey, right? We have, there's a, a plant called a beach plum. Uh, we make a beach plum rosé cider that's unbelievable, but we're growing those beach plums along the Jersey dunes, the shoreline of the Jersey shore, because they're helping shoreline restoration, right? It's an ecological you know, repair activity, right? We're doing the same thing with our cranberries and cranberry meadows versus bogs in the middle of the wetlands of of central Jersey, an area known as the Pine Barrens. Um, It's where the Jersey devil's from, by the way, so I don't go to our meadows because I don't (laughs) don't want him to rip my face off because he's real. Uh, I can tell you the whole heritage of the Jersey devil. Okay. Uh, On the next time, I want to have you back. Right. (laughs) the The point is creating a powerful brand that resonates within the community talking about mm-hmm. you know who our workforce is how we're engaged in agriculture how we're incubating all of these growing operations for other small scale family farms to build this collective right all of that is deeply rooted in the idea of both jersey and newark's deep deep heritage in this space and it really is a powerful way to connect the most desperately impoverished people in the inner cities, right? Primarily our black gang member mm-hmm. ex-offenders, mm-hmm. but connecting them to these also forgotten about rural farmers, mm-hmm. right? So when I got back to this idea, when I started by saying, you know, once you understand for whom the system works, you realize it's working real well. Well, if you look at that politically, you know, a hundred percent of the urban counties, every single county and every single city in our country voted for Clinton in 2016. A hundred percent of the counties outside rural agrarian United States, mm-hmm. the rural counties, a hundred percent of them voted for Trump. Well, what I know is Trump and Clinton weren't either working for those folks in the middle <laughs> cities or those, you know, toothless farmers. They were working for the rich folks in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh. Well, guess what, Jolie? Our cider, which is obviously gluten-free, but it's made with no preservatives, no sulfites, no added sugar, no concentrate. Do you think that that's for like the people in the city in Newark or the farmers? No way. It's for the soccer moms in the middle, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, only 105 calories and no added sugar, and they love it. 
So it's building a brand and a company that's connecting the the inner city and the agrarian poor, connecting together and building community with the people in the ring between them. So it's interesting you talk about connecting the people. So how do you think your brand connects with its audience and with the people that you're trying to, I don't want to say sell to, but how do you connect with your the consumer i guess how does well, the brand do that i you think say? you know what's 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 really important about that question and you know there, there's two ways to build brands there's there's ways to think about sort of what you're doing operationally that matters to your consumer right which which we called at our agency cultural innovation or cultural strategy if you look like a brand like starbucks that built with no advertising, no marketing, no communications at all, right? Mm-hmm. Starbucks built, you know, to become one of the most powerful brands on the planet, built by designing stores in a certain way, talking about baristas, you know, not this, or a vente latte, foamy, whatever, yeah, yeah, whatever yeah. you're getting, right? So it's this experience when you walk into a yeah. Starbucks that makes you feel so connected to the brand and you feel connected to the, I don't know, the Ethiopian coffee growers that are growing and roasting the beans and you feel connected to the people around you that are sitting there using the space as their alternative to their office, right? Because they don't want to sit at home and they don't like their nine to five jobs. So the idea that Starbucks created a whole system around building the third space for people, right? It wasn't the office and it wasn't the home. It was this third space where they could feel part of community, but they were engaged in their individual work. It's basically Starbucks is basically a real estate company, not a coffee company, mm-hmm. right? So that's I read that actually. So is uh, McDonald's. Absolutely, right? yeah. And I remember reading a long time ago. McDonald's is <laughs> amazing thing too, which is they designed their chairs ergonomically to be insanely comfortable for something like three minutes, and then they become very uncomfortable. Fast so you sit food. down, right? They fast food. Yeah. They want you yeah. in. Feel yeah. like you're eating something worth it and then get the heck out of the store, yeah. right? So so it's interesting to think about these places that are designing brand around the customer experience. Do, right. Yeah. Then you've got brands like you had mentioned one of our brands, Coca-Cola. You know, Coke, one of the most powerful iconic brands ever on the planet, one of the most recognized symbols on the planet. I think only second to like the Christian cross or something only was marketing as a shell or like a skin on top of how they did business. I mean, Coke's just fucking sugar water, right? It, Dasani, their water down here is just literally filtered tap water from Atlanta. They're a plastics company and they're a sugar water company destroying the planet. I mean, Coke is creating massive levels of childhood obesity, well, selling fans. Don't and, hold back. Say what's I, Well, no, but it's like having worked with them and saw like... The water that they used yeah. in developing nations where somebody would spend a week's salary on a fucking Coke, right? And it's literally just this devastating product, right? Mm-hmm. All around the planet. So, but Coke always had this powerful brand that in the States was captured this idea of American humanitarianism, right? What it was for America to be the good guy, America going in in World War II and saving the planet and blah, 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 blah. So Coke created a very, very, very powerful brand, but it's just a skin around their company, right? So to answer your question about how do we think about our brand, you know, it's been interesting when people are experiencing our brand, like when people come to the farm and to our tasting room and they see our integrated food system, they see 
the pigs hanging out with the chickens and and the orchards and the, all that stuff they feel so deeply part of what we're doing mm-hmm. and whether they're connected to it because they're interested in our workforce development program or they're interested in regenerative ag or they're just experiencing you know the outdoors during the pandemic they feel a certain way every time we've tried to capture something in an ad it never quite works because we're moving too far away from experiential stuff and into mm-hmm. just typical branding. And then I'm just part of the noise of the whole alcohol industry, right? So some of our ads are really great and funny and edgy, and some have gotten us pretty darn close. So to do you do it with your ads. advertising background? Do you do your ads? Do you, are you the creative? Uh, I have, I have a lot of people that I tap into from my past. Yeah. Um, and I think I'm the worst nightmare possible. I was going to say, you. <laughs> nothing's worse than a client. Right? I know what I'm talking yeah. about. I yeah. have a nightmare. Oh. Right? Whether it's our internal people or it's my old friends from the industry. Yeah. And the worst thing you could have is a client that thinks he knows what the fuck he's talking about. I know, that's so funny. So you connect with your brand, so it's more about the experience. The really important thing, so we created an area of branding at our agency, Amalgamated, with my partner, who is a professor of marketing at Harvard Business School, which we called cultural branding, right? And Doug Holt- I just want to, I just have to stop you for one second. That I threw that in there? Well, you all, I love the way you, you won't just say my friend, Mark, you'll say my friend, Mark, who happens to be the president of this company and they were the world. Yeah. Leader, like, I, I love it. Every sentence is- Because I'm building brands all the I time. I know, right? it's so good. Like, it, it just slips off your tongue. Right, and you know what? It's like such a- <laughs> I hope when you talk to them, they go, yeah, my friend, Joel, she has this amazing podcast called Branding Matters and they talk about, like, you just- Yeah, well, it's funny because it's also- it's dealing with all of my own insecurities, right? If I can just casually throw in, which I've already done today, Harvey Weinstein, <laughs> totally. Barack Obama. And I was going to call you on the Harvey Weinstein thing. And Harvard. So I'm hanging out with Harvey yeah, and Hillary. We're just yeah. hanging out having a yeah. beer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So oh, yeah. I, just, I love it. It's so endearing, but I well, just have to call you on it. It is. Be- it's, it's constant brand building right it is, it is. It's like why do these things resonate i have to be able to say how i come out of it but it's funny because it yeah. does sound a little delusional no uh, it's funny uh, and every yeah. day i promise myself i'm like you know what i'm just a farmer and i should just <laughs> farmer. and i'm like oh no, that well, i do oh, want to say I, though we're having a huge storm here today uh 14 inches i want everyone to know i want all your listeners to know i was planting garlic yesterday just so we could get it in the ground before oh awesome so, I'm still okay. officially farming. Even okay. Though, uh, I just want to quickly say real, yeah, yeah. real fast on this idea of, of branding. So what we said in cultural <laughs> branding as our sort of area of practice was that brands that hold out very powerful ideologies or very powerful worldviews that respond to tensions at a moment in time, right? So if there's cultural tensions, right, whether those are political or economic, whatever they are, when a brand can respond to those cultural tensions, the brand resonates more deeply right so the real answer to your question about how do we connect Connect. with consumers Mm -hmm. if as a brand and as a company we are taking on issues of climate change through regenerative agriculture or we're taking on issues of uh, racial injustice because of our sort of diverse and integrated workforce population we're even taking on income inequality which is a huge issue in this country because me as the shareholder me as the owner I'm not building a company that's rooted in my, you know, short-term quarterly gains, right? Like most companies are. I'm rooted in again the collective well-being. So the more we can hold those notions out as part of our ideological ethos of our company, 
the more the brand resonates with people. Mm -hmm. And guess what? The better our fucking cider tastes too, yeah. right? So if they're hearing our stories about how we source our cranberries or our gooseberries, or I've created a network, Julie, I've, I've, I've created a network of farmers, of orchardists throughout New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania. I've given away tens of thousands of cider apple trees for free. These were the very, very famous varieties that were thought to be extinct that made Newark cider mm -hmm. that I've brought back to cultivation. But instead of me just owning that apple and growing them myself, I've given them away to growers, tens of thousands of trees for free. I pay those growers five times whatever the market rate is on their juice apples, right? Because they're growing from- Did you say apples. juice apples? Yeah, yeah. Juice. <laughs> Apple juice, like they grow for companies like Mott's apple juice in Arizona ice tea, right? right? No, I'm their juice apple. Oh, I'm paying no. five dollars for the juice apples. Right? Oh, right? So anyway, I had to throw no, that in. That was funny. Right. So and funny for the audience who's listening, by the way, I'm also Jewish, so that's why right. we can have you know, this magic back and forth. Right? So I was gonna say that this idea of creating viability for those farmers, right? Who again, interestingly, are all outrageously conservative, outrageously whatever, but by building community with them and creating a viable revenue stream for them, right? That interconnectedness, when I tell that story about where our apples come from versus like the mega cider brands, like down here, Angry Orchard and all the other big cider brands are all juice and concentrate from overseas, right? They're just getting concentrate from the mega countries like China and Poland and whatever else. When people hear how we source our apples versus how those big companies are sourcing their apples, it literally makes the cider taste better. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so knowing that brand story through that experience works a hell of a lot more than me trying to like own shelf space against Anheuser-Busch who can just knock me off the shelf when they want. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the story is everything. And you have a great story. You know, when I talked in your intro about you put your money where your mouth is, you know, I meant that and it goes from everything starting off with your employees. So you only employ ex-cons and the chronically un unemployed. Can you elaborate on why that is that part of I know that's part of your story, but how did you come up with that idea? Yeah. And it's interesting because you also said only and I want to come back to that because when I started the company, it was yeah. only. Right. Oh, it's so not anymore. Newark. Well, I'll explain because it's sort of okay. an evolution like everything else. Right. Um, so again, when I went to Newark and it's so interesting, Joey, like I, I already said, like I, I started this work as this very typical liberal elite guy. Right. Like I'm going to come off the hill of Montclair and go to Newark and help black folk. Right. Like there's an arrogance to that. There's a mm. smugness to that that I think I sort of needed knocked out of me and and nothing like being engaged in the work and especially farming and stuff and doing mm -hmm. work this hard, knock somebody off their pedestal pretty quick. But I started to see that when all of my employees were were, were just ex-offenders or returning citizens and immigrants. But when you started, was like that your, when you sort of wrote your business plan or decided on your business, was yeah. that one of the things you're like, okay, so I'm only going to hire, you know, these well, weirdly, it was the only thing I had the worst fucking business plan ever. Cause we didn't have a business. <laughs> Cause you didn't have a business. I was in business for over two years before we even knew about Newark cider. So we weren't a cider company for the right. first two years of our operation. Okay. We were doing, like I said, like we were exploring urban agriculture opportunities. Right. We were doing these like shoreline restoration things. I was like, I'm going to go to Newark, hire a bunch of ex-cons, and then we'll figure out what the fuck we're doing. It was the worst business plan ever, okay. right? So yeah. A lot of things though, good that came out of it, I came to understand that I thought naively that giving these people sort of living wage jobs was the answer. I didn't realize that that was just the very beginning, right? So I ended up 
spending two years with Columbia University building a curriculum for our workforce on things like conflict resolution, identity value, emotional intelligence, fiscal literacy, you name mm -hmm. it, all these skills that you and I very much take for granted. And it was interesting because I also, when we started also broadening out to include veterans, what's interesting is people that are coming back from a tour of duty in, in Afghanistan are suffering from the same things that people coming out of prison are suffering from, the reorientation, yeah. the coming back into the community, right? Whether you're talking about drug addiction or mental illness or community reintegration, both of those institutions, our military and our prisons, have just knocked the shit out of these men and women, just yeah. annihilated them, right? And keeping- So they're coming back with P PTSD. With, absolutely, right? from both places. Yeah. Right? And they're also stuck in survival mode that they can't really think beyond, you know, how do I just get through the day, right? How do I keep a job, not go back to prison or not go back to war and, you know, get some food on the table for mm -hmm. me and my family and that's it. So they have no capacity for thinking beyond that short-term crisis because they're in survival mode, right? So I started to really build this more robust curriculum. So jumping to even now, like all of our farm managers are trained in horticultural therapy, right? So we're using working the land as part of our healing process, right? But I wanted it to stop feeling so much like a program, right? Like me, liberally mm -hmm. rich Jewish guy and a bunch of black gang members, you know, farming, farming for me. It's a little slavey. Yeah, 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 the, yeah. The funniest story, Jolie, I got to tell you this. When we early started, I had this old, huge, amazing black lady named Wanda working for me, right, in Newark. And she was hysterical. She was always the sassiest whatever. Anyway, we were in a brainstorming session about the things that we could be growing in Newark in our, in our community gardens and things. And she said, well, I think we can be growing anything here. I think we should be growing cotton. I said, oh, no. I said, Wanda, I know I said there's no bad ideas in brainstorming. I said, but if you think I'm coming from Montclair to ask you folk to grow me a bunch of cotton, oh, it's not goodness. a good idea. Oh my God. Right. So it's like, we're always in that kind of space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's happened though is as we move to the farm as our primary space of operation and out of the city of Newark, and we've created more diversity and integration, right? Including again, you know, veterans, people with special needs, a, a wider group of people other than what I would consider the urban poor. It's created a sense of integrated community where people aren't there because of their labels, right? Mm -hmm. So you might be a black gang member, but you're there as James and, and everybody. We've created this space of, without sounding entirely dorky, but like the space of loving kindness. Too late. No, I'm just kidding. Right. No shit. I'm, right? kidding. I'm kidding. Where no, but like where people can come and spend the time. Oh, this is the other really big thing. When you're thinking about transformative work, whether we're talking about how to transform our agricultural activities or healing the soil or helping an, an individual shift from a state of chronic poverty to being a sort of resilient member of the community, mm -hmm. that shit takes time. And there are no programs, there are no agencies, there's no nothing in our country that allows for that time. Because again, we're all about instant gratification. We're all about like quarterly returns for shareholders now. Mm -hmm. So we built this space. Profit over people. At the farm. Right. Profit over people. And even all the bullshit social enterprises. Like when you started in saying like we have to shift from I to we, one of the biggest problem is all these social enterprises, all these impact investors that say, we're going to do well by doing good. I'm like, fuck you. Because yeah. all you're still talking about is your fucking profit, right? Yeah. You can't make the first part, how rich can I get by helping folks? 
It doesn't work that way. It's got to work the other way. And yeah. if we're creating, you know, a sense of community and collective well-being, hopefully through that, I get some, you know, value myself, right? So in our model, everyone has to both contribute to and benefit from being part of this network. And for a long time, and this is the part that took me almost 10 years, I had a lot of folks that were just benefiting from, but mm -hmm. not really contributing to, right? Mm -hmm. and, 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 a lot, and that frustrated a lot of our other workforce because they're like, not for nothing, these guys don't do any work and I'm doing all the work. And yeah, so yeah. I've had to, it's taken us time to create more of a, an integrated system where everyone feels empowered, everyone feels connected, everyone feels that they have the time to screw some shit up and, and they're not going to be evaluated at that moment, but also an expectation that they sort of step up, contribute to the, their fellow community members, right? No, I was going to say, I mean, and by doing that and having them contribute and giving them that responsibility, it helps build their self-esteem, right? Because a lot of these people that come back to their self-esteem is shot as well. So when Absolutely. you give someone responsibility and they have a sense of pride, I want you to share that story. I, You and I spoke about that gentleman, about the story and about his son. I don't want to give it away, but do you want to tell that story? Because that's real shows a sense of, do you know the one I'm talking about? Was it about his son working with my son? No, it was about, he wanted to talk about his story because he wanted and then his son asked him to read it every single night because oh, oh yeah 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 so that's lovely that was a that yeah. was a while ago we had a lot of you know non-paid media a lot of press right like our a lot of our brand is built out of you know articles and tv mm -hmm. shows and stuff that that are sort of capturing what we're doing because we're again not only is it about the the workforce we're really leading innovation in this country in terms of a holistic form of farming that just right. doesn't exist certainly here on the east coast so there was an article that was going to be coming out about the workforce and and our orchards and one of our crew chiefs um who is <laughs> it's totally fine to use his name because i was asked for permission but james is um like a major guy with a lot of street cred, right? Really still deeply sort of in on his gang level of, you know, identity, where his identity comes from. Mm -hmm. But he also knows how to play the game so well, right? Like when we're doing, let's say we'll do a podcast together. He just dials up the street. Like you afterwards, I'm like, you don't talk like that motherfucker. Like, oh. <laughs> also, now you're just like the stereotypical guy with you. They're like burn her phone. <laughs> like, come on. So anyway, he knows how to play to the audience pretty mm -hmm. well. But, there's always an earnestness to his work and he's one of our crew chiefs and he's a critically important partner of mine. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this young reporter, she was really a young, young woman. And she wanted to talk to James about sort of how his expertise in grafting apple trees. And that's basically how do you make an apple tree by putting a rootstock with a piece of sunwood. Anyway, it's a very technical mm -hmm. thing. But I think to myself, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, well, this is the dorkiest area that we could ever ask like a gang member from Newark to talk about, about, <laughs> grafting apple trees like he's a nurseryman right and i was yeah. like well i'll ask him for permission because she wanted to use his name because she had talked to him it was so interesting she wanted to use his name and take a picture of him so i went up to him kind of like embarrassingly like i was like like i was kind of shy about it. i was like um james like uh that reporter wants to use your picture and your name in this story but i would totally understand if you didn't want to like have that out there and he goes well if she didn't use my name and my picture how would my kids know that these are my trees she has to yeah. use my name. I love that. And right. And then the article came out and his son, and this is already a few years ago. It's interesting because now I haven't thought about this story in years because his son now actually works with us and works with my little son. But um, 
his son, who at the time was like six or seven, had his dad read him the article every night before he went to bed. That was his good night story to read the article about his dad and his trees, yeah. right? And that shift from as father, as teacher, as role model for his own son to not think about his identity. You know, you talked about self-esteem. The other really powerful thing is how do we capture our identity as individuals, right? Who are we? How do I see myself and how do I want others to see me, right? And when you talk about, especially people in gangs, all of their identity is tied to their sort of seniority in that gang, mm -hmm. right? And what yeah. their street cred looks like, whether it's with their parole officer or their fellow gangs or other gangs. Well, James's identity at that moment, it became so clear to me that it had shifted entirely away from that yeah. into what does it look like to be a good man, to be a good father, to be a good farmer, right? And James is so critical to like everything that we're doing. I think of him as one of my closest friends. And, um, you know, he and some of the other guys were like at my son's bar mitzvah, which we had at the farm and we called it a farm mitzvah. And <laughs> like, never in my wildest dreams would I think that these were my closest friends that would be yeah. sharing this kind of moment with me and my family. And, and just to really wrap that up, you know, Oscar, my son, the Canadian hockey player, you know, works all summer for these guys and he, he runs our, our chickens on the weekends. And so he's, he's very involved in like our poultry activity, but He's working for these men, some of whom have never graduated high school, you know, spent 18 years in and out of prison. And Oscar works for them with such respect and such care because he wants to live up to them. And I was telling you about our Sunday night family dinners. Now Oscar hangs out at the table with little James, James's son who had that story read to him. Oh, wow. James okay. now works with Oscar. That's so great. It's this multi-generational thing. Mm -hmm. So we're watching, and their friendship is just their friendship. And that's an entirely separate thing. So the this deep integrated feeling to me has no longer feels like a quote unquote program but it feels like what community should feel like. right and it's not us and them it's it's we it's as us. A so much of like the liberal agenda is still keeping us from them like we're gonna go and stand with I black know. people at a black lives matter march right in an obama 08 shirt to prove that we yeah like yeah black yeah people for, yeah for for sure. Right. That's not how you build community, right? Because mm -hmm. it's still us and them instead of like this bigger we, right? To your point. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I was gonna just say, I mean, that really is a sense of pride. And when you're building a brand in a community, a big part of that is the culture internally, right? And I think when people resonate and they hear these kind of stories, it does connect you with them and your brand becomes more, it becomes an experience, not just going to the cidery, but when you when you're drinking that, this is all encompasses, right? So I think Absolutely. That's, I love that story. So, okay, so we've talked a lot about the community and the people and your employees and everything. I want to talk a little bit about the actual product. And you did mention a little bit, and I love this story. I'm going to bring this up because I think this is a great story. So when you bought the land back in 2015, and it was winter, and you're, you tend to be a bit impulsive, I'm getting the feeling here, <laughs> yeah, You know, the, yeah, the business yeah. plan comes after anyway. And so you buy this land, and it's winter, and there's snow everywhere. And now all of a sudden, and you, and you, in the meantime, you bought thousands of trees that you're excited you're going to plant and you're going to get this going. And then the spring comes and the snow melts. And can you tell us what happens when the snow all melted? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's funny because not only did we, you know, buy trees, as you said, I spent years with an apple detective, a guy named John Bunker and some others finding the original Harrison apple tree that made Newark cider. And 
it ends up that there was a an orchardist in Virginia, fifth generation orchardist who just recently passed away, which is heartbreaking for us because he's such a big part of what we're doing. It was guy Tom Burford and you know, saved the one remaining Harrison apple tree by taking cuttings on a tree in Livingston, New Jersey in 1978. Oh, wow. Right. So we found this apple through Tom and we had you know, we took cuttings and we made all these trees. So we had, you know, 10,000 of these heritage cider apple trees in our nurseries getting ready to be planted in spring 2015. Right. And so, you know, we, we have this big farm and there's a slope, which would be our main part of our orchard, 60 acres, like Southern facing slope. It's exactly where you want an orchard, blah, 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 blah. But before we bought this farm, the land had laid fallow for, for almost 20 years. And that's a whole other story. But anyway, so we're sitting on top. So there had been all these invasive species of mugwort and thistle and Russian olive, all this stuff that had been depleting all the nutrients in the soil. Right. So anyway, we're standing on the top of the hill and I'm with some of my orcharding consultants. And, uh, and this one guy says, um, look, when we plant this in two years, you're going to have a hell of an orchard here. And I said, two years, Steve, I, 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 we're planting. Yeah, we're planting in six weeks. I'm like, he's like, you can't, we haven't done anything to heal the soil and everything. I'm like, no, like we have to, my guys need work. I got to get these trees in the ground. We got to get making cider. He's like, look, man, I want to say this. I love what you're doing. I love this whole project. So I'm saying this with as much sort of respect and love as I can. So please take it as I need <laughs> You need to stop approaching this like the aggressive New York Jew you are and <laughs> slow the fuck down. And I'm like, no, no, no. He goes, no, you stop. He goes, you can't make your trees grow any faster. So he's giving me this advice. Obviously, I don't listen <laughs> uh, because I am an aggressive yeah. Well, I, I think it's more because you're Chuck Rosen. Whatever it is. I'm, I'm I've just, known you since apology. university and it's all about who you are. But right. it's, and that's a compliment. Right. I'm like, I got to get these shoes yeah. in the It's going to work. I'm also you get like, shit done. You get but shit I'm also shockingly optimistic. Like, I'm right. like, this is going to work. Like, yeah. nobody would have started a business like this, like to buy a farm in the beginning of climate change to go <laughs> head to head with Anheuser-Busch. And, and not like, even inspect the soil. Like, right. Just, <laughs> right. We had no idea what the snow. I didn't even know. I'm like, hope this thing works. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> we'll be good. This looks so, like a anyway. nice spot. <laughs> right. So anyway, we plant the trees, 10,000 trees, having spent crazy amount of time clearing the land and everything anyway so sorry you planted them you didn't listen to me you said i'm we doing did it not right listen away. to steve yeah we we planted the trees yeah they're in the ground and for three years the trees were just anemic they mm. they were struggling they weren't taking real hold and as regenerative organic farmers we don't use pesticides we don't use herbicides we, we really try to like work with the with the systems and soil biology and stuff Anyway, somebody had recommended to us the only way that we were going to do this is if we killed all the invasive species and all the, you know, pathogens in the soil and like just bomb the shit out of the place basically with Roundup. With, and, with uh, all fertilizers and... Yeah. Um, so it was either like bomb the site and keep the trees alive and basically shift to being a conventional orchard or what we decided to do, which took a tremendous amount of courage, was hmm. rip out all of the trees, all 10,000 trees. 10,000 which by the way, years of finding them, years of having them in the nursery, three years of them in the land, right? We lost eight plus years and these trees take five to seven years to fruit. So God. we just cut them down, you know, a year or two before they would start fruiting. So it was a big, big That decision. must have been hard for you. It was heartbreaking. And also because what it took for me and those guys like James to clear the land and plant yeah. those trees and then ask these same guys to rip them out of the ground. It was devastatingly yeah. hard for all of us. But what it allowed us to do was actually sort of take this opportunity to recalibrate, think about the land differently, learn from our mistakes, 
right? And have both the courage to try again, but also the humility to learn from those mistakes. But so what we ended up doing was spending two years after that, just cover cropping, right? Creating all this nutrient dense biology in the soil, right? Using things like clover and sorghum and buckwheat, just rounds and rounds of cover cropping. We cut into the hill side the system of swales and berms, like ditches basically, that deal with soil erosion and runoff. We built uh, 12 acres of pollinator strips, which was on top of these berms, these hills. We had acres of native pollinating flowers, like our wildflowers, which is now also our cut flower business. But they brought in not only bees and and butterflies, but hummingbirds. Our place is full of hummingbirds now, Mm -hmm. right? And then we replanted the orchards in a model which is known as a silvo pasture, which is an integration of livestock, our produce, like our veg production, as well as our orchard. So we have pigs rooting the land to get rid of all the roots from all the old dead trees because this is a woodland area. We have, you know, goats eating weeds. We have 4,000 chickens and turkeys and geese and ducks eating all the pests, right? Wow. Which are also growing our eggs, uh, our eggs and there are meat. Mm-hmm. Birds, right? So we have all our own poultry and pig operation integrated with orchards and our vegetable production, 20 acres of no-till organic produce. So in the end, when I rushed it and didn't really understand this idea of integrated diversity and and systems thinking, we had like an anemic monoculture. We just had this mega orchard of, of sick trees. But now the thing is so vibrant and so resilient. So we are now really equipped to handle climate change, mm-hmm. handle you know all the pests that we're dealing with, all, everything that we're doing. So it's proof in the land that that's what building something holistically can feel like. And by the way, the food coming out of our land, because there's so much, there's such nutrient dense food, you've never tasted an apple until you've had this apple mm. or, or zucchini or carrots. Oh, I keep I like bet. asparagus, I keep taking home like for my family, but like it's stupidly sitting on my passenger seat. And then I just eat all the asparagus and it's like, it's like candy. And like, <laughs> I thought you were like, well, I ate it. You know, yeah. And you know, whether it's donuts that we're making or asparagus, I'm eating it if it's in the car. So anyway, yeah. So it, it was both really hard lesson, but really understanding what building something of value feels like. Yeah. And you know, you talk about integration and isn't that really the theme of everything that you're doing? I love the way the whole integration of the soil and the pigs and the chickens and everything all the way to your employees. And, you know, I just have to stop for a second. It's hilarious. You and I both talk with our hands and this Uh, is nobody can see us, but I I watch you talking and you're all over the place and I'm all over the place. Anyway, it's funny. But so the integration aspect of it is when you and holistically i mean it really personifies everything about who you are and what you're doing and what this business is all about i think so and you know it's so it's so interesting that comes back to your very first question like how did i get to this work from you know lawyer movie producer ad guy I didn't know that this was the work, right? I didn't know that this is what it was going to take. I didn't even know that I was building community. I was working with a bunch of ex-cons in Newark. Like, if you asked me 10 years ago, would I be like planting garlic the day before a snowstorm with all these guys? Like, never. But so it was like understanding how to like learn from nature, think about a system that is alternative to, let's say, the dominant system, right? The way we farm is very, very different than conventional farming. The way that we employ people is very, very different Mm -hmm. than the conventional system of job creation, right? And so all of it, we've learned about building what I would consider an alternative model and now being able to incorporate 
food producers, like the bakeries that we're helping incubate by growing the ingredients for them, but then selling them at our farm market and the restaurants we partner with and the retailers that we partner with, building this whole ecosystem Mm -hmm. of everyone along the entire supply chain as an alternative to the mega national global food system that says, hey, yeah, fuck, I can get an avocado in November. Like that system's working great again for the people that it works for but not for small scale farms, not for mom and pop opera, you know, people who are making tomato sauce or whatever. So building this alternative system, but modeled after what we're learning from nature and the farming has been so exciting for me to be exposed to it, feel it, and then see what that builds like as a business and, you know, to the nature of this show and as a brand, right? Because what one thing that I can tell you is I do not know another other company. And I certainly never had a client that could have this level of transparency. You know, when our consumers ask any question, whether it's sourcing or chemicals or farming or what we pay our workforce, everything is an open book because there is nothing that we are building as a company that we want to bury as a brand, mm-hmm. right? And I think that has been one of the most exciting things for me as a guy who's really rooted in brand building to say like, that's what it's going to take for people give a shit about where their food comes from right now. And one thing I'll tell you is this pandemic has showed the things that we value mm-hmm. as society. Yeah. It's funny, you know, you, we were going back to 2015 and now here we are and the whole pandemic happened. And now people are doing or starting to think that way. And brands are starting to go in that direction, but you were doing it pre-COVID, which I know it's so funny you should bring that up, Jolie, because like, I can't tell you how many people say to me like, oh God, like how lucky are you that you've got this farm and that you're working with these people because this stuff's all I'm like lucky. Like we, like we did this for a reason. It's not like, and before it became fashionable. Right. Well, it's not like I didn't know mass incarceration was a problem. It's not like (laughs) no climate change was a problem. It's not like I didn't know that the majority of chicken we grow in this country is actually processed Uh. and bleached and packaged in Mm -hmm. China and then Mm -hmm. back. I knew all this shit. So yeah, it's not like we saw the pandemic coming in any way, shape or form, but it did sort of reinforce the idea that what we're doing matters. And now to your point, I think a lot of people are catching up to understanding that. And we as- demanding it. Right, and what do we value? What do you and I value? We only value convenience and and low cost. You ain't beating Amazon. There is no way around it, right? They're masterful at what they're building. So we can't compete with that. We have to say, well, can we build another kind of system that is engage in the work that does matter or people have valued these other things, mm-hmm. community well-being, the health of the, the the food that they're putting in their body, animal welfare, you know, land. I yeah. think of our land as a stakeholder in our business, as much as I think about me or any of the other partners, right? I'm not allowed to just rape the land. I'm not allowed to poison the land. Mm-hmm. I have to think about the land's well-being if this thing's going to actually be, you know, sustainable as we start facing you know, climate change. Yeah. And when I think about it, a lot of companies, a lot of brands are trying to now keep up with what the demand is from the consumer. Whereas the consumer for your brand, they're keeping up with what you were doing. I don't know if I'm articulating. I hope so. Right. That's no, I don't goal, know if I'm right? articulating what I'm trying to say. No, but- you said it perfectly. Like, and it's a big question because 
again, you know, when I look at the alcohol brands that have done so remarkably well down here, I can't compete for shelf space against them, right? So again, it's not nearly as big in Canada, but but White Claw, which was started actually by a Canadian, Anthony Von Mendel, and Mike's Hard Lemonade, who was our client, and we launched Mike's. I feel like I taught him how to do all this. <laughs> Yeah. I didn't even get a fucking fruit basket, but here he is with White Claw. So this hard seltzer that's just made from, you know, chemicals and tap yeah. water uh, and cheap malt alcohol, it outsold last July 4th weekend in New Jersey, um, not this year, but but last year, it outsold beer. Like these undrinkable seltzers hmm. outsold beer on July 4th weekend. So I can't compete for shelf space against that. So if there's a little six pack of Ironbound on the shelf, well, you ain't finding it because it's behind a pallet of White Claw, right? So to your point, there's no way I can win the shelf wars. There's no way I can win the commoditization of food or craft against those guys. But as consumers start to care about the stuff that you're clearly articulating, they will seek us out and say, wow, why are we drinking that stuff instead of this stuff? Right. So for me, it's a race, right? Do I run out of money before we hit viability? I know we could be a viable company. I know this thing can be operating at all on all cylinders. It's just a question of like, can those consumers find us in time? And we'll see, you know? Yeah. Well, hopefully this helps. Right. You're spot on. And I will say also caution to the rest of your listeners who are building brands. You also can't just chase this stuff. Like all these corporate social responsibility things that are what I would call greenwashing. Like if you're doing business in a certain way, don't pretend all of a sudden you give a shit about this other stuff. Right. 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 You brought up with me like a fascinating thing uh, in one of our phone calls a while ago. You asked me how I felt about the Oreo campaign and the oh, Rainbow right. campaign. Yeah. LGBTQ rights. Right. And it's great. And I, I honor Nabisco. And again, as a fat guy, like I'll eat as many Oreos as I have. Well, who doesn't love Oreos? I mean, let's be honest. Right, right. If I have I'm always a hero when I come home and my kids see that there's Oreos there, which isn't often. Right. And I'm like, well, it's because I support LGBTQ rights, right? I'm like, I'm doing what I can. Oh, yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. Right? So, but, but that dangerous territory, because if it starts to look like pandering to a community, right? And I saw all these brands down here jumping on the Black Lives Matter campaign mm-hmm. because it was like in vogue. Well, it isn't in your hiring practices. It isn't when you support certain companies that are supporting private prisons and mass incarceration. Like if you truly give a fuck about black lives, you're going to have to change entirely how you think about whether or not they are part of us, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, They being, you know, the black community, are they part of our community or is it just this thing on the offshoot that makes like for a nice cookie or a nice t-shirt? So it's very, very tricky work to take on corporate social responsibility. Like when Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon and everybody's, Ooh, he gave $800 million to, to climate change research. He makes $321 million a day. If that motherfucker can't do something about changing how Amazon thinks about carbon neutrality, his $800 million means nothing. It's a marketing gimmick, right? It's literally just smoke and mirrors bullshit as he treats his employees the way he does, as, as, he, as he is on track for becoming a trillionaire. A lot of great things about Amazon. And thank God we had them during the pandemic. But boy, oh boy, oh boy, you cannot like hold yourself out as somebody who gives a crap about climate change when you own Amazon and you gave away two days worth of salary. You know, that's not real climate change activism. That's greenwashing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's you have- the listeners have to really help build their companies and therefore building their brands in a way that's saying, these are the things that matter to me. These are the things that matter to my community. And we will do business in a way that honors those things that's how you can build a powerful brand in this kind of 
uh, we versus me space that you started the introduction about. And that's how you will connect with, because people who like-minded people will connect with each other, right? So if I value what you value, then I'm going to buy your brand. And, you know, you talk about niche marketing and finding those people. And as these causes come to light, people are going to see right through the bullshitters out there, part of my friend. And also, you know, you were saying that it made me think, not only are you connecting to one another, but weirdly, that's also building community, right? right? So this idea of saying, how do, how are we, how are you and I connected? What are we connected through? Right. And it can be a whole bunch of things. It can be for me and you, it can be our past together at university or our our shared work in, in the branding space. But you know, this idea of deep connectivity means I have to give a crap about what you're doing and you have to care about me. Period. I can't give you the time of day and just because we're Facebook friends doesn't mean we're connected. It doesn't mean we're Facebook commu- friends. Right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. But it's not. Like, that's not yeah. community. And, and and because there's no social connectedness or cultural connectedness. So I think you raised such a good point that I think as brands can become facilitators of building community and building the usness in it, whether that's where you want to eat or it's what shoes you're wearing or whatever it is, I think that's a very powerful role of private enterprise. It's a very, very powerful role. But if all of it is, is selling stuff at all costs and you need to buy more and more and more and more stuff, whether it's because it's got a rainbow flag on it or a BLM hashtag, that's bullshit because that's just more stuff. Yeah. And it's not building community. Yeah. And it's not really getting to the heart of the matter. Well, that was amazing. I mean, we could talk all day. Before we go, I have two more things I do want to talk about. One is, congratulations that you were just named by Yelp Magazine as the one of the top cideries in all of the U.S. Yay. That's so exciting. Yep. Were you yeah. surprised? Outrageously, because uh, weirdly, I guess one of the reporters had called us, but it just went to voicemail and nobody ever checks our messages. We never even got interviewed for it. So like when we found out we're in the top 20 cideries in the country, it was like out, an uh, outrageous surprise. I ended up sending it to our PR guy. He's like, well, that's cool. Like we didn't know <laughs> at all. So, and yeah. so what do you think based on everything we just talked about? I mean, what do you think it is that got you on that list? I think it's everything Everything. we just talked about. Well, and also, I mean, we think about cider. My partner, our winemaker, was a winemaker, not a cider maker for one thing. But he came Mm -hmm. out of Napa Valley and he went to UC Davis and and, and worked at like Sinsky and some of the other best wineries. (laughs) There he goes again. (laughs) There you go again. No, I love it. I I sought him out. Here's the thing I'll tell you, Joel, about my name dropping stuff. It's because I, the one job I do better than anything else is I've built a network of people that are better at stuff than I am, right? right? And I'm not letting my massive, ridiculous ego get in the way of associating with people that are way better at shit than I am. Well, you know, so, that's what I'm doing with this podcast, right? right? I know what I don't know, but I know if I can bring Charles Rosen on and other people that are going to know more and share more and help more, then that's my motivation. So I totally get it. It's such a great point. It's such a great analogy because yeah, you're now building community and you become the aggregator or the curator of all these people talking about this stuff. And then that by doing so, your show now has brand value, right? Because by doing it. Right, right. So it's, it's so important. But so Cam, who's this really acclaimed winemaker came in because like, we're thinking about the balance of acids and tannins and sugars and mouthfeel and all these things that don't happen in cider. So that I think the liquid is really, really good. And Cam and I always talk about like his job is inside the can and my job is outside of the can, right? So the branding on the outside, yeah. the problem is we suck so much about 
production because we don't have anybody who's actually thinking about the can. <laughs> so like he's doing it. So, but oh wait, we still produce on a farm in a garage. So it's a little tricky. But anyway, so I, I think I think it's this, it's not this or that, it's this and that. I think the Yelp thing was about the quality of the liquid, but also about experiencing the things that matter in building this network of farmers and stuff that we're building people to your point feel it when they're there so right well what i found was interesting is it wasn't the and correct me if i'm wrong but it wasn't one of the top 20 ciders it was one of the top 20 cideries exactly just give you a quick story i'd never been to a cider i've been to california northern california and napa and Anyway, a friend of mine in Saskatchewan, Canada, which I don't know if you've heard of, is a, is a huge farming town. And she invited me to go to a cidery there. And now I, the name escapes me, but I'd never heard of a cidery, wanted to go. We went there and it, this was just this past summer. So it was during COVID. But even then we were outside. It was the most beautiful landscape. It was gorgeous. And just like we I've done wine tastings in um at vineyards we were doing cider tasting so they give us a little thing of all different types and the whole experience was amazing so when i read that i thought okay so this is for you again it's back to that experience of going to the cidery and having the wine but then everything else that goes with it well i think the the last part of it i was saying as you were saying that it made me think about because you were asking why we won this the other thing that i really love about what we're building and it's weird for me to say this because it doesn't feel like this interview at all but because we so don't take ourselves very seriously we're this like we're the most busted version of napa valley you've ever seen right? right what's funny for us is like now that all like a lot of new yorkers are coming out to us and like all these like brooklyn hipster foodie elite douchebags yeah they're seeking you out right and we're like ah who's taking a bridge over channel now you fuckers like i recognize i I know what that beard means i know what that flannel shirt is and uh, and so it's like it's but i think what's really interesting about it is there's something so welcoming about our place because we aren't so precious right because we sort of embrace our jerseyness right we are a little busted we're a little broken it's a little mess and there's pigs in the way (laughs) the other god just before american thanksgiving our turkeys one of the farmers forgot to feed them and they all came down to the tasting room 500 turkeys they were looking for dinner and oh everybody my god hanging out outside in the cider garden drinking and everything and all of a sudden there's these mega like like reserve your turkey for thanksgiving now like before we had to kill them all. but it was like i was like only here and then the Hilarious. dogs are chasing the turkeys and it was a mess but people loved it right. so yeah it was we are not very precious and uh and i think that welcoming jersey edge has also been uh, i think a big part that's of how so great well congratulations because that's quite a big you know Thanks. deal to be named so that's wonderful okay so the last thing before we go you have mentioned all these famous people that you've worked with in all your various careers over the years so can you say can you share with me who the most uh your favorite one to work with or know and why because i'm curious wow i don't get asked that ever uh-huh. oh, you know, I will say favorite because I also think she is the most misunderstood. I would say Hillary Clinton is one of the most brilliant, caring, funny, sexy really? people I ever sexy wow. as fuck. And I remember once I said to Lauren, I came home from a meeting with her. What I'm makes like, her sexy? I'm, I'm curious. Oh, your mind. Well, 
I think she is so genuinely driven by public service. Weirdly, the optics, and again, talk about branding, right? She's probably the worst brand on the planet, right? So when she was running against Obama and Obama was viewed as black Jesus, like the hopey changey guy, he didn't not, he was not nearly as equipped to be president of the United States as Hillary Clinton. But she was always perceived as this like hard, angry woman who's out fighting, taking this, taking that, all about personal gain. Their brands were entirely opposite to who they are. Wow. I will tell you honestly, and I know, as you know, I know a lot of people on both sides of the aisle. I'll tell you, I don't know many people as driven by personal ascension as Barack Obama. And I don't know many people as driven by public service as Hillary Clinton. And yet the brands, the optics of it, are entirely opposite. opposite. So, so you found that sexy me. because you could connect with that? No, I felt what was sexy was that once she wasn't packaged or mispackaged the way that she was by her husband and the party and the party leadership, her warmth, her drive to really support those of her around her, her willingness to just get the shit kicked out of her every day, but also like insanely warm. And I was, I'm always overwhelmed by her humor. So it was like this humor and intelligence wrapped with warmth. So it it was this weird thing that was, I was just very drawn to. People describe me like that. (laughs) Well, yeah, see, no, it's true. And me. Uh, Yeah, no, uh, misunderstood part at least. Uh, But yeah, so like I always, I always, kind of joke with Lauren, but I wasn't joking. I was like, if I had a chance, which Clinton would sleep with? <laughs> like, who did I want to sleep with more? Bill Clinton or yeah, She's like, yeah, awesome. Charles, nobody's sleeping with you. So let's get that straight. Oh. Right? Uh, but anyway, yeah. yeah. So I think she was always the person that most impressed me because I would also say her resiliency, her capacity to keep doing the work that mattered. I don't see that in very many people. Mm-hmm. Well, so I didn't think about that. It's a good question because I, I- And that's a great I, answer. I love your answer yeah. to that. Okay, well, we could keep going, but we both have to get on with our lives. It has been so amazing talking to you. I love it. I wish we could do it more. I'm going to have to come see you and come to your cidery when all this goes away and I can actually come there. I'm super excited. So next time in New York, I'm going to definitely make it out there. So if someone wants to learn more about Chuck Rosen and Inbound Ciders and your amazing farm or cidery, What's the best way that they can find you? Well, before I say that, first, I want to congratulate you on the podcast. I think this is awesome. I I think your genuine interest in these other people and your genuine sort of desire to like build relationships with stuff. I think it's going to be a great success. And I'm, I'm really looking forward. I having known some of the secrets about who you're talking to, I'm really excited to hear these and hear other episodes. And I, I wish you the best with it. I think it's going to be. Oh, you're uh, so sweet. Well, thank yeah, you. Well, you're yeah, a big part of it. That's the first thing. Thank um, you. And then, yeah, I guess to know about us, just uh, ironboundfarm.com. And uh, yeah, you can get my email address there and all that. And stuff. you're on social media. Are you on social media? Oh, yes, Instagram and Facebook. And yeah, we don't really use our Twitter account because my old assistant left, and we don't know the password, and we can't get into oh. it. So that's, <laughs> that's hilarious. What's yeah. your What's your um, handle on Instagram? Just Ironbound Farm. We actually Iron- have two because we have both Ironbound Farm and Ironbound Hard Cider. Okay. It's very confusing. So, but they can find us just at either at Ironbound Farm or at Ironbound. And is and are you open year round? So people can yes. go all the time. You're open year round. Yes, and this is a big winter. But uh, I've been thinking 
as a Canadian, we're, we're talking about right now putting in some curling sheets. Uh, so do you know that there's only one curling shed in all of New Jersey? And I'm not okay with that. So are you a big curler? Uh, I wouldn't say big. Well, I'm, I'm in perfect curling shape being oh. this right now. <laughs> so I'm big in that way. Oh, okay. But, you know, we used to have to curl in high school. I don't know if you had that, but growing up in Kingston, no. we, to, we took curling. And yeah, it's the big. There's a lot of curlers in Alberta. Huge. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Like, so yeah. every time I've mentioned it, people are like, we'll come out. So, yeah, oh, wow. so we're, we're trying to embrace our winterness. And uh, you should get a skating rink. Well, we have we have our pond and we skate. Oh, OK. Awesome. But, um, mm. We and we were thinking with this big snowstorm today we may end up skiing through our trees we'll see <laughs> so, um, oh, but uh no i was gonna i was gonna say that um you know the restaurants being shut down is devastating down here i mean yeah. being in this new york city new jersey region that we are and we supply those it's it's devastating and but what we're really trying to do in both supporting them but figuring out models for others is like how do we stay open outdoors and not try to pretend to be an indoor place outside, but like wear a, wear a hat and put on a coat and come hang out and drink and eat with us. So uh, yeah, we're going to see how that goes this winter. So we'll Oh, see. well, good luck with that. That sounds fun. Yeah. Okay, Chuck. Thanks again. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I'm going to talk to you again soon. All right. And there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and maybe we even learned a few things that will help you with your branding. But most of all, I really hope you had fun. This podcast is a work in progress, so please make sure to rate and review what you think. And please subscribe to Branding Matters on whatever platform you listen to. And if you want to learn more about the branding badass, me, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, or any social media platform under Branding Badass. Oh, and before I go, I have to give a shout out to my amazing editor, Chaidozi Uzo Chukwu. I could not have done this podcast without him. So thank you, Chaidozi. Well, thanks again, everyone. And until next time, here's to all you badasses out there.